James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And this morning we're going to, I'm going to read verse 13 through verse 17, and we're going to spend our time this morning just addressing verse 13. But if you would, stand with me. We're going to pray and ask God's blessing upon us, and then I'm going to read those verses. Let's pray together. Now, blessed Lord, we come now to the preaching of Your Word, and we pray for light and understanding. We pray for hearts, Lord, tilled by the Holy Spirit, ready to receive uh, the truth of Your Word. And Lord, by Your sovereign grace and power, we pray that our lives, according to Your most sovereign will, would bring forth 30-fold, 60-fold, some of us, even more, fruit. That our lives would be strengthened by this Word of truth. Lord, that where we are confronted with sin, we would humble ourselves. Where we are, Lord, uh, encouraged by truth and holiness and virtue, we would rejoice. But Lord, through now the ministry of Your Word, strengthen Your people. Lord, liberate us from our own ignorance. Liberate us, O Lord, from the bondage of any uh, philosophy or idea or any truth, Lord, that we don't fully understand. Lord, bring bring to our hearts light and truth. Make us, Lord, uh, see and understand. Help us to believe what is right and good and holy and just. Lord, enhance our lives, our marriages, our families. Lord, enhance what we put our hands to in this world that we would be the salt and light you've called us to be. Lord, we, we come to, Lord, learn how to glorify and enjoy you more than anything. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, uh, listen now to the words of James from verse 13 through 17. He writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, to, I guess, use a boxing analogy this morning, um, as James addresses a contempt for the providence of God, we may feel like we've been in in a boxing match and we are just getting beat up. Uh, there's a, a, a saying in, in the boxing world that, you know, to, to just kind of be on the ropes, and that is we're finding ourselves in a defensive posture and we're using the ropes of the ring to keep from falling down because James is jabbing, he's hitting us, he's punching us with heavy punches. And, and if we've been following along, I mean, it just looks like James is just, he knows he knows the human heart. He knows human nature. And, he, and he, he, he's hitting that portion of human nature, that sinful portion of human nature, uh, heavily. I mean, he, he's bringing to bear the will of God upon these areas where Christians must examine themselves and repent. Here James begins to touch on this contempt for God's providence. Now he doesn't mention the word contempt, and he doesn't mention the word providence, but that's exactly what's on display here in these verses. Now what is contempt? 
Contempt is a very strong dislike. A very strong dislike. Now we know what providence is. Providence is the management of God's creation. God created everything and He manages His creation. That he, he manages it according to His sovereign will. And He brings about all that He has decreed, all that He wills, He brings about in the management of His creation. I mean, James opens up the letter addressing and dealing with trials and, and uh, temptations that we might fall into, teaching us as Christians to understand that all of that is not accidental at all. Nor should we see it that way. But how do we know we have a contempt for God's providence? I mean, we certainly wouldn't say that with our lips. That's not something we sit around and talk about. It's not like we go to lunch with our brother and sister and we just say openly, I have a strong hatred for the providence of God. I don't like how He's managing my life. I don't like how He's managing this country. I don't like how He's managing this world. I mean, we don't say that, do we? And we don't talk like that. And yet, James uses a very common scenario, probably a scenario that he had witnessed many times to bring this contempt to light. And let's look at it. Let's look at that this morning. I want to begin looking at James 4.13. Listen to what James says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Thomas Manton who wrote a commentary on the book of James, says this about the opening, this opening line. He says, you know, it's in these words that, that God summons the believer in three ways. These are strong words. And Thomas Manton sort of uses the analogy of the courtroom. He says, but these words summon the believer to this Bar of judgment. Three bars of judgment. He says, first of all, to the, to the bar of conscience. James says we are to come to these words and we are to, uh, to see if our consciences condemn us or not. Whether we have a contempt for God's providence. Whether or not we know in our own conscience that, that we, we do spurn God's management of our lives. That we don't like what we're going through. We don't like what we're experiencing. James writes, and according to Thomas Manton, he says, Bring your conscience to this bar. And see if you can silence your conscience when your conscience condemns you that you do show contempt for God's providence. He says another bar that we come to in this verse is the, uh, uh, the bar of God's eye, sort of under God's inspection. We live our lives before the, the face and the eye of God. He says, now, are we able to pass God's eye test, God's inspection? We stand before God, as it were, and say these words openly and outwardly that I am the Lord of my own destiny, knowing that the Bible says that God is the only the Lord of the future. Do we say and believe things that I control my own life and everything in it? That my will is sovereign. And that in my life is the sum total of all the things that I have put my hands to. It's kind of like Nebuchadnezzar walking out on the balcony, isn't it? You know, Nebuchadnezzar looked over Babylon and it was supposed to, uh, by all accounts, it was a gorgeous, beautiful city. Uh, one of the wonders of the world, these hanging gardens were there in Babylon. And, and Nebuchadnezzar took great pride in the architecture and he said this is what I've done I've created these things and, and God didn't take great pleasure in that um, him robbing God of the talents and skills that he had given Nebuchadnezzar and God punished him for it 
Will we pass God's eye test? Will we pass God's inspection? When God looks at our lives, will we be able to pass the test by the things we say, the things we think, and the things we do? Can we pass the test that we do not have contempt for God's providence? And then the third, the third bar that uh, Thomas Manton mentions is God's tribunal, God's, God's judgment. At the end of our lives, we'll be able to stand before the judgment seat of God and be acquitted if we are guilty or if we are accused of showing contempt for God's providence. Could we acquit ourselves? Could we, could we, could we defend ourselves and be determined not guilty? And the only thing that you can bring as evidence is the things you think, the things you say, and the things you do. You can't bring up, well, sincerity. <laughs> You're not going to be able to bring up, well, that's not what I intended. All you can do is say, here's the, here's the things I thought. Here's my thinking. Because all things are open and laid bare before God. Even our thought life. Things we say and the things we do. I want you to keep that in mind as we begin, as I want to point out several things from this verse, and again, hoping that we will be able to examine ourselves accurately and be able to come to a place of great confidence in God's grace and mercy, or an area wherever we need to repent, we would do so. Let's look at the very first point from this verse this morning. Out of these words, brothers and sisters, what we see is that worldly people, worldly people speak in worldly ways. Worldly people speak in worldly ways. Now, worldly people are those who show contempt for God's providence. Worldly people are those who show a contempt for God's providence. You could go all the way back up to the beginning of chapter 4 and read how worldliness in us, the hatred, the envy, um, all of those, those covet, those uh, uh, covetous, the, the, uh, those lusts that we have, the, the, how we covet one another, covet other things, how all of that ends up being worldliness and yet James here hits on it again because worldly people show contempt for God's providence by the things they say. The things they say. Notice James points this out. He says, come now. That's your summons. Come now. Listen up. As a parent, how many times have you looked at your child and you said, hey, listen to me here. That's what James is doing. You listen to me. What if, when that happens, what do we say? You look me in the eye. You look at me because what I'm about to tell you is going to have a great effect on your next few minutes. That's what James is doing. He's come now. Notice what he says. You who say. You who say. Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit Worldly people speak in worldly ways. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to compare. Let's compare our speech with the world's speech, right? Is there much of a difference? Do we talk like the world? If we're talking like the world, then more than likely we are reasoning like the world. We are thinking like the world. Remember what the Bible says. It's out of the heart, the mouth speaks as a man thinketh in his heart so is he let's look at two two passages of scripture that help us see how braggadocious the world is go to genesis 11 genesis 11 these are going to be two passages of scripture that we look at that's going to have a an impact on the whole sermon itself genesis 11 Look at verses 3 through 7. Now notice, 
This is the sort of new world order after the flood. It says the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Now it came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men have built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have the same language and this is what they begin to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, verse 7, and confuse their language and they will, so that they will not understand one another's speech. Notice how braggadocious and arrogant they were. Notice, the, what, notice what they wanted to do. What did they want to achieve? They wanted to build there for themselves a name. A city that reached where? Into the heavens. We see here man's attempt to disobey God because God told him to spread out and fill the earth. We see men choosing for themselves what they will do, how they will be blessed, and what they will do to receive that blessing. That men, when they choose their own ways, always are playing God. Always are playing God. When we choose to obey ourselves rather than God, we are just creating for ourselves another God whether it be our own will, opinion, desires, pleasures, whatever the case may be. Look at another passage of Scripture. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 17. Verse 17 through 20. Now this, again, now you can look at the broader context. We don't have time for all of that. But look at verse 17. And he began, this is this, this businessman. This rich person, he began reasoning, look, thinking to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? What we see here in these words is what James is saying in verse 13. Worldly people speak in worldly terms. Their minds are set on this world. Their hearts are set on this world. Therefore, their speech is earthy. It's not divine. It's not biblical. It doesn't reflect the will and sovereign nature of God. It doesn't reflect and take into account God's sovereign uh, management of their lives in providence. It doesn't take into account what God has revealed to us and how we may glorify and enjoy Him. The, all of these... All of this, beloved, is man choosing to make his make his self happy. I know what makes me happy. I'm going to choose for myself what will make me happy, and I'm going to put my hands to it. And I don't care what God says. I'm going to act indifferent to it. They are so consumed by this world, they give little to no thought to the next. And I'm going to ask you a question. And James touches on this in James, and later in the next few verses. What does he say? He says, your life is a what? What is your life? It's a vapor. It's, it's not even a tree. It's not a rock. It's a mist. It, 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 it's something that comes, it comes into visibility for a it's gone. It's, it's like walking out in the cold morning and taking a breath 
and that breath is gone. It dissipates. Now that's the reality, brothers and sisters. That's the facts of the matter. And yet to live contrary to that is foolishness. It's worldliness. It's nothing more than, than serving one's own interest, making oneself God or His pleasures or whatever the case may be. But it's in denial of the reality. The heart is set in this life. It's trenched in this life. And all it cares about is this life. See, the worldly person is not willing to sacrifice in this life to gain the glory of the next. A worldly person wants their pleasure now. You remember the story over in Luke 19. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, I hope. The rich man had all of the comforts and the pleasures of this life, and yet they both died. Lazarus was was a man frail, eaten up with sores, diseases. And they both died at the same time. And Lazarus woke up in paradise. The rich man wakes up in Hades. When the rich man calls out and says, Listen, just touch my tongue with water. Quench this. Quench my thirst because the pain is so difficult to deal with. What did Abraham say to this man? He said, you had your pleasures there in that life. Lazarus had nothing but torment in that life. Now he has pleasure. You received your reward. You wanted riches, you got them. You wanted prestige, you got them. You wanted fancy clothes, you got it. You wanted parties and dinner parties and you wanted all the right friends, you got it. And that's now over. And your life, which is a vapor, is gone. And now you're going to spend eternity in this sad condition. You see, brothers and sisters, worldly people direct all their labors and efforts to those things that in the end really don't matter. Let's go to the next one. Number two, worldly people think about the benefits, the blessings and the rewards of this life, but they give very little thought to the means which God has set up for us to enjoy those things. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean by that. How do I put it? Daydreaming. A dreamer. A daydreamer. A fantasizer. What, do we, what can we may find? A worldly person fantasizes about being rich, being uh, powerful, being well-liked. Having all the great things in life. Oh, if that, oh, I could see me being her or me being him. I can see all of these things. And this, this worldly person spends so much time and effort thinking about the benefits, the rewards that God does grant people. That God does give people. But they spend all their time fantasizing and dreaming about those things instead of serving God, putting their hands to the work and labor that God has put them with the gifts and the talents that they've been given in order to see that reality come to fruit in their lives. No, they're focused solely upon the blessing, the outcome. They spend all their time just fantasizing and dreaming about the riches without wanting to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and go to work. Doing the means. Oh, we look, brothers and sisters, listen to me. It's like, oh, if I could just have that, or if I could, if I could be that intellectual. It doesn't matter what it is. Is that we, want, we want the blessing, but we don't want to do the work that God has ordained to get it. That's worldliness. Worldliness. 
Worldliness lives in the daydreaming and fantasizing about all these pleasures we desire apart from God's direction and providence. We're always focused on the prize and never the work. You can think about this small little church. You know, we can talk about wanting more people. We can talk about wanting to do more things. But you know what it takes? Work. Work. We can talk about the nicer things of life. Having and enjoying the nicer things of life. But what does it require? Work. Labor. See, one puts the focus on the blessing and the other puts the focus on the blesser. Lord, bless the work of my hands today. Bless my mind. Bless, bless what I put my hands to. Help me, O oh Lord, deal with any situation that I face that might bring frustration or whatever the case may be. But Lord, I labor in all of the blessed talents and the gifts that you've given me. Worldliness is put, kind of put this way. Worldliness focuses upon the flower, not the root. Worldliness focuses upon the bloom. Not the healthiness of the root, the dirt. Nobody wants to get dirty. Nobody wants to get down. There's nothing glamorous about digging in the dirt and preparing the soil for the root system. But everybody loves, you know, they don't take pictures of roots. You take pictures of the blooms. And that's the way a, a lot of worldly people see life. Number three, worldly people, beloved, are arrogant braggarts. Worldly people love to brag. They love to display their arrogance. Notice what verse 13 says. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a a profit. Notice what we'll do. We will go and we're going to go to these cities and we're going to do business and guess what? We are going to make a profit. Arrogance. Arrogance. They love, worldly people love to brag. They love to take credit for what God has blessed them with and what God is doing with them. They may have all kinds of gifts and talents personally. They may have a a great personality. Where did that come from? They may have a tremendous mind on them. Where did that come from? They may have a, a lot of the right connections and friends. Where did that come from? Well, those things come from God. See, they don't see God's gifts in their lives, but they assume that all that they have and all that they do is according to their own abilities. Their confidence comes from within them, comes from them. A worldly person puts his trust in himself or in his own process, not in the God of history. Not in the God, uh, not in the, the God of sovereign creation and providence. The created world ceases being a gift to, to, for him to use under the divine management of God for his own glory and well-being, but becomes our whole desire and in and of itself. We don't look to the blesser. We don't look to all that God's given us. We don't look to the skills and the talents, to the feet and the hands and the mind and the eyes and the mouth and the ears that God's given us to use for His own glory. And guess what? For our own happiness and well-being. We don't see it that way. Well, the worldly person loves to brag and they love to, to, to show off their arrogance and their own abilities. I'm going to tell you something, beloved. Listen to me. I know some of us may be turned off by those sappy, syrupy, pseudo-spiritual people that, you know, go around saying amen all the time and whatnot. But I'm going to tell you something. There is a spiritual language and there is a worldly language. There is a way which we must think as Christians and the way we must speak. The Lord wills. The Lord wills. I want you to think about Job. I'm just going to mention him. We're not going to turn there. I want you to think about Job. How quickly did his life change? And it had nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with God. 
God decided to take everything he had away from him and to test him. I want you to, now listen to me. Here, in, in, let's speak in human terms. In human terms, Job went bankrupt. He lost his family. Tragic. I mean, his wife told him to curse God and die. He, he become infirmed with diseases. His body was filled with sores from head to toe. He, his life had come under such, such a trial and, and, and such hardships that his friends said that God, God's judging him. God must be judging this man. He must be in his heart. He must be evil. Because God's taken away all he had. I mean, from a human perspective, right? The, 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 the picture is, wow, this man that looks so successful now looks so pitiful. All by God's providence. You see, brothers and sisters, it would have been so easy for Job to say, look what I've done. Look at my family. Look at my kids. Look how beautiful they are. Look how faithful they are. Look at all of these things. Look at my wife. Look how faithful she is. But when all of it was taken away, when all of it was said and done, the nature of men come out. When we find ourselves in the most difficult circumstance, when we find ourselves in want and need, what will we do? What will we do to get what we want? What, will we lie? Will we cheat? The world seems shocked of this latest college scandal that's gone on. And a lot of these elite, uh, you know, upper class people have paid thousands and millions of dollars to get their children in some of these prestigious colleges. People, people lie. People cheat. People cheat to get what they want. People lie to get what they want. The question is, as believers, will we do that too? That's a, that's, that's a picture of a love for this world. We are, our lives aren't consumed and wrapped solely up, solely up in these institutions, in these degrees, in these diplomas, in this certain lifestyle, in this certain category of a upper class, middle class, whatever the class may be. That's not the sum total of our identity in life. The Bible says that, that wisdom, knowledge, a relationship with God, communion with Him is better than gold and silver. Let me ask you this. Who's better off now? The rich man or Lazarus? Right now. Right now, today, who's better off? The rich man or Lazarus? Who's better off? Fourth. Number four. Worldly people are overly fixated on the future. Worldly people are overly fixated on the future. That is, worldliness is displayed in an overfixation of one's future. Notice the verse again. Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit so much so, they're so fixated upon the future, they forget what God requires of them today. Today. Tomorrow has its own set of issues, the Bible says. Worldly people do not consider God's providences, only their wants and desires. These are the impulses of today. Worldly people love to dwell in those arenas of desires. They spend time there thinking about what I'll have, what I will do, what I will be. And while they're doing that, they are neglecting to do what they need to do today. What's God requiring of you today? Who does God want you to serve today? Who do, how does God want you to use the wealth, the abilities, the talents He's given you today to bless His name and to bless someone else or to do something else? See, worldly people are constantly fixated on themselves and their future without regard for anything else. 
Worldly people think that beauty, money, power, friendships, jobs, abilities will last forever and they won't. See, when we project to the future, we're assuming that we're going to be like we are now then and we're not. You know, there is a saying, you know, the young live forever, the young seem immortal because... You don't have the frailties. You don't have the disabilities. You don't, you're not experiencing, you haven't experienced in the human condition what it means to grow older. And as you grow older, guess what you learn? You learn life, you're not going to be here forever. You learn that life is going to terminate. And, and, and yes, life is fragile and frail. You're not as strong as you think you are. And, and there comes a time when you become on a decline, not an incline. And it changes your perspective. But you don't want to fall into the trap of being fixated on that. You don't want to fall into a trap of actually believing that you are going to live forever and that your beauty is going to last forever and that your, you know, the power you have now is going to be forever. Whatever the case may be, your friends and all of these things because things change. But what is a constant fix or a constant... Um, And a permanent feature is God's sovereign power and management and providence over His creation. Psalm 49 verse 11 says that the the thoughts of the ungodly are that our houses will, well, they'll remain forever. Our houses will be here forever. You know, we make monuments to ourselves. We put our names on buildings. They're not going to be forever. Every day, listen, brothers and sisters, you know what you do have? You have the blessing of today. You have the blessing of right now to do what? To show how much you love God, to show how much you love your neighbor. To show how much you want to glorify Him. To how much you take great delight in what He's blessed you with. And how you can use that for your own enjoyment and the enjoyment of others. You have right now to do that. Don't worry about tomorrow. Make plans, but understand God overrides plans. It's God that directs the steps of men. Brings us to our fifth point. Our fifth point is this, is that worldly people have a different understanding of wealth than the godly. Or the godly should have a different view of wealth than the worldly. See, the worldly equates happiness with profits and gains. That's what the text says. We're going to go to such and such a city. We're going to work there. We're going to engage in business. And we are going to make a profit. We are going to gain out of this. We're going to enrich our lives. We're going to become richer. And that's success. The godly man doesn't see wealth totally wrapped up in gold and silver. Gains and successes. In fact, if we go back to James chapter 1, James says that a godly man can see the things he's learned in a trial or loss or tribulation into some affliction as gain because guess what he gains? He gains a superior character. Superior character. His character is refined, shaped, and honed by the trial and the tribulation. The trial and tribulation act as a stone, if you will, to grind against his character and his life or her life in order to make her a godlier person. To make them, he or she, a godlier person. It's not always about gain. Sometimes there's great value in a loss. Sometimes you don't know what you have till it's gone. The worldly place a higher value on this life than the next. And that creates a problem. I want you to think about the shallow life of the man in Luke 12. Here this man had everything money could buy. He just he, he was so just bored with himself. He goes, what, I, what can I do to even just be more satisfied? What can I do? I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down these good barns and I'm just going to build bigger ones. He had more than he could spend. He had more than enough. But it wasn't enough. 
in his eyes. Look at how he perceived wealth. See, a worldly person is always going to see wealth as gain, gain, profit, profit, gain. We as Christians must learn to see wealth, happiness, success, well-being. Hey, the calmness of the soul. The security of our hearts. The, the, the pleasure of a silent, of, a, of a, an appeasing conscience. Brings us to our sixth and last point. Worldly people make great promises to themselves and others without due regard to God's providence. Again, the verse, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. What a promise. What a promise. Have you ever made yourself a great promise? Promises are the fruit of confidence in ourselves. We make promises to ourselves because in some ways we see that we have some ability that we can take confidence in. We will go, the text says. We're going to do this. When we're going to do such and such, we're going to lay out what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. Nothing's going to get in our way. Nothing's going to stop us. Psalm 31.15, the psalmist says, My times are in the hands of God. My times are in the hands of God. Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. We don't like thinking like that. We like thinking we are in control and that we... Uh, take great pleasure in having a confidence about tomorrow and next week. But the bottom line is, brothers and sisters, we don't know. We don't know what this afternoon holds for any of us. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own, Jeremiah says. It is not for man to direct his steps. Notice, when you go to the prophets, have you ever, have you, has it never fascinated you that God could tell Jeremiah, okay, Jeremiah, here's what you're going to do. Here's your life. And this is going to be your life for the next 50 years. God didn't ask Jeremiah's permission. God didn't ask Isaiah's permission. God didn't ask Hosea's permission. Hosea, go marry Gomer, a harlot. Go get her. Go buy her off the trading block. They're selling her as a slave. She becomes so bankrupt morally and uh, economically. She's being sold naked as a slave. Go buy your wife back. I've got to ask permission. And we find ourselves in contempt with these things. We're finding ourselves in the category of these worldly people. We're not thinking divinely. We're not thinking spiritually. We're not letting the Bible shape our hearts and, and firm, our, firm up our convictions. We certainly aren't glorifying Him and finding our happiness and well-being in Him. We're not doing any of those things. We're only looking for and finding our own happiness in the things that we put our minds and hands to. We have, in, in, in fact, become our own gods. What are some of these characteristics of people who, these worldly people who make such promises and don't consider God's providence? Let me give you some of these. You're going to want to think about these. First of all, these promises push out prayer. And we make these promises to ourselves. Why do we need to pray? We've already made a promise. And we're so confident in our strength and abilities to accomplish it, we don't need prayer. What is prayer for? Prayer is for the humble. Prayer is for the weak. Prayer is for the one who has his confidence or her confidence in God. Prayer is for the one beseeching God for his wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. His power and strength. Prayer is, is calling upon God that he might work in 
the individual to accomplish what he's called that person to do. That's what prayer is for. But the one who has all this self-confidence, the one who brags on, uh, brags about his or her abilities, the one who already sees the future and determines the future, well, they don't make these promises. We well, don't need prayer. Job 22, verse 21 and 28, Submit to God, and what you decide will come about. What's, Jane, what's Job telling us? If you're going to see anything come to fruit, what's the first step? Submit it to God. Christians ought to ask God, Lord, is this what you want me to do? Is this what I should do? Is this the door I should go through? Lord, open this door, close this door. Lord, lead me, guide me. I want to be in your will. I don't want to be outside of it. I want, Lord, to be faithful to you. That's the way Christians think. That's not the way the world thinks. Secondly, promises not only push out prayer, but promises lead to disappointment. I want you to think about all the disappointment you've experienced in your life. Have you attributed that disappointment to God, or is it because you really made promises to yourself and you trusted in the wrong things, and therefore that disappointment came? You chose your own way. You chose to do it your way. You chose your own path. Think about Genesis 11. What did they say? We're going to build this tower. We're going to go up to the heavens. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Did it happen? They made a lot of grand promises. Did it happen? It didn't. Those promises didn't come to fruit. They were disappointed. Let me ask you this. What about the guy that built better barns and bigger barns? Did his promises come about? See, he didn't realize God's providence. He didn't realize that his soul was going to be required of him. He wasn't thinking about his soul. He wasn't thinking about eternity. All he was fixated upon was the moment. All he was fixated upon was, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to fulfill this pleasure and desire. And I can see how the increase will spread across my whole life. I'll have more than I'll ever, ever want in ten lifetimes. And God says, you are a fool. Because your soul's required of you today. When you were out building new barns, you should have been at Bible study. You should have been at worship. You should have been reading your Bible. You should have been telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You should have been working for my glory. Thirdly, making these grand promises always results in idolatry. Idolatry. See, you make a promise and then you have to fulfill that promise and then you have to create for yourself a new God. You have to put something in God's place. When you think everything depends upon your human effort and everything depends upon your power, everything depends upon your will, then you've just taken the place of God. We ought to be dependent on God's power. You ought to be dependent on God's blessing. The Bible says God is the one that creates wealth. The ungodly have holes in their pockets. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 16, verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. And lastly, Brothers and sisters, these promises forego what is the highest importance of all, and that is the service and enjoyment and worship of God. Luke nine fifty nine. To another he said, Jesus said, follow me. And that man turned to Jesus and said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the, let, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, 
Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus was calling people, come to me. And the guy, ah, they were making all these excuses. I can't go right now. I've got, to bury, I've got to bury my father. And Jesus said, you need to lay that down. And you need to come follow me. Brothers and sisters, worldly and foolish people don't understand what this life is truly all about. And what brings real happiness and success and, and well-being. It, it, it's not in the things we can create. It's not in the profit and gains. It's in our relationship with God, to God, for God, in His glory. And as we, as we walk in that, guess what He does? He fills us with great security. First of all, the wealth of, of personal well-being is worth What? You can't put a value on well-being consciously, bodily. I mean, even going through the infirmities, knowing that my God has His hand on me. I'm under His great care and providence. He cares for me. He loves me. That's worth a truckload of gold and silver. I love what one minister said, He's, and he was a doctor. He was a medical doctor that had become turned into a preacher he said, there's not one person, and he gave an example of a person in his town who was the richest person in that town, and he had lung problems. He couldn't breathe. And this was before modern technology with, with breathing machines and, and oxygen tanks and stuff like that, and he would have these tremendous episodes of, 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 can't, of, couldn't, of couldn't breathe and catch his breath. And he said, you know, he said, that man right now would write a check and give you every dime he had if he could breathe air. Because there's something about the physical stability that when you get down to it, it's worth more than gold and silver. I'll leave these with you this morning. Think about them. If we find ourselves in any way worldly, if we find ourselves in any way to whatever degree showing contempt for the providence of God and God's care for us, where we are in this stage of life, where we are, what we are, what, what's going on around us in circumstances, if we find ourselves in contempt of those things, will you, brothers and sisters, 